Well, today, uh, God put a message on my heart that I am pumped up uh, to deliver. And you know, every Easter, we like to uh, deliver uh, an Easter message all about the resurrection of Christ. But I also would love to share on an example, like we did for our drama team, through the eyes of another character in the scripture. And so we're going to do that today with the character of a little-known man, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And we're going to see through his eyes of the resurrection of Jesus. And you know, uh, we've heard those, those uh, sayings back in the day. We had the bracelets. What would Jesus do? Y'all remember that? What would Jesus do? And that was to remind us in any given situation, what would Jesus do? But today, the title of the sermon is, What Would Joseph Do? What would Joseph do? We're going to learn some incredible lessons from the man of Joseph, and I'm excited to share. So let's pray one more time, ask a blessing on the Word of God, and we'll dive right in. So, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, and we thank you for your love. And your love has been demonstrated so well with Resurrection Sunday, what you would give us so that we can be called your children. And now as we open up the Word of God, may you bless it. May you speak to our hearts, God. May you give us exactly what we need here today to not just get through another day, but to be reminded of all that you have given to us so that we can be everything that you need us to be here on planet Earth. So we love you, Lord. We praise you. Lead us down this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you all get to know real quickly that I am a revival history nerd. I love revival. The whole reason I'm in the Foursquare Church today is years ago, I found the story of Amy Simple McPherson. And the stories that came out of Angelus Temple grabbed my heart. And I remember even before Amy Simple McPherson there in 1927, there was a young man, 26-year-old coal miner named Evan Roberts. And he launched the Welsh Revival, which over 100,000 people in that time gave their lives to the Lord because of this movement. Now, Evan Roberts, he was just a simple man. He, he never read anything but his Bible. And he would tuck his little Bible in his pocket. And anytime he had a moment when he wasn't digging for something in the coal mine, that he would stop and reflect and just meditate on a page of scripture. That was his life. And God used that man to launch not only a great revival, but a revival that would sweep the globe and even launch a Pentecostal movement, the awakening of the healing movement, signs, wonders, and miracles. I mean, this revival was so impactful in that place that sports arenas and sports things were completely deserted. Bars and pubs were shutting down left and right. Churches were being opened 24-7 to accommodate everybody who wanted to come and give their lives to the Lord and, and be filled with the teaching of the word and, and in fellowship with each other. I mean, you had to arrive hours early just to get a seat, to win a seat in the church. And people oftentimes would be outside, the windows would be open so that they can hear the preaching of the word. It was so impactful even that police officers had to retrain their horses because they were originally trained with foul language. And now that all the police officers were getting saved, healed, and delivered, the horses had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> so they had to retrain the horses because of the purity now that was coming out of the mouths of the officers. Now that is impact. That is true revival where there is reform, where there is complete change. And we look to the Amy Simple McPhersons. We look to the Billy Grahams. We look to the Evan Roberts of our days, and, and we think, wow, what amazing people. What charismatic figures. God, would you bring another person? Would you bring them into our land to bring another revival? Well, I'm here today to say, if Jesus would go to the cross for each and every one of us, if he would rise from the dead for each and every one of us, that means each and every one of us, regardless of your age, 
has the power to change the world. Because Jesus changed history, you and I can change the world. Because of everything that he did. And in your world, we're going to see, doesn't just mean every nation on this planet. Your world can be right here in North Texas. Your world can be your neighborhood. But God wants to use you to unleash heaven into this place. And I'm so convinced of it as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday here today that Jesus, he came to this world like us. He put his divinity aside. He was still God, but he put his divinity aside to live this life as a man, to, to walk the world as a human, to go through the same temptations that we go through, to endure the same sufferings that we go through, to physically die and to physically raise from the dead. He came as a man. And what was amazing is that he had no sin. Jesus walked this life as a man with no sin. So there was nothing separating him from the Father. But then we see in Luke chapter 4 and other places where Jesus put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And he was filled by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that he can do signs, wonders, miracles, preach the gospel, lay hands on the sick and see them recover. So if Jesus had no sin to separate him from the Father and was filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to do the works that he did, who are you and I to say that we can't do the same? Because today, because of what we celebrated in communion, we have no sin to separate us from the Father. Our sin has been hidden in Christ, and we are filled with the same Holy Spirit. That's why in Psalm 103, verse 12, it says that he has separated as far as the east is from the west our sins and our iniquities. Then we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that the same Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and I. And then we have this wonderful little scripture uh, in John chapter 14, verse 12, that many of us have read and many of us have taken to heart. But Jesus says, you'll do these works. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, all that fun stuff. But even greater works will you do. Jesus raised the dead. I don't know how much greater you can get than that, but I know that there's a call and an anointing upon our lives that we can do the works that Jesus did. You and I still have the power to change the world. Colossians 3, chapter 1, it says that we are partners in the resurrection of Jesus. Not only did Jesus die for our sins and raised from the dead, but he made it so that our spirit man, which was once dead, would come alive again and walk in the same authority and in the same power as Jesus. So again, Jesus changed all of history so that you and I could change the world. And I think that the saddest thing on planet Earth is a Christian who feels that they can't change their world. With all that we have been given, with everything that Jesus endured and went through to give to us, the saddest thing is to not feel that we can impact this world. So as I mentioned, we're going to look at a little-known figure. There's some great Josephs in the Bible. You know, Joseph in Genesis, uh, Joseph, the, the father of the earthly father of Jesus. But here we're going to look at Joseph of Arimathea. So if you would go with me to the scriptures, Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to start in verse 57. So way at the end there. And we're going to read several verses today and just celebrating what Jesus did. And then I want to share some teaching of the example of Joseph. So again, chapter 27 of the gospel of Matthew beginning in verse 57. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. 
And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock. And he had rolled, rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the grave. Now, why is it important that we mention that Mary and Mary were there? Well, there's a very corny, cheesy joke. Please don't hold it against me. But uh, if there's some news that will completely change the world and you want news to spread really fast, you tell it to a couple of ladies. They'll take care of business, right? <laughs> Please don't hold that against me. But they were there, and they, unlike the disciples, had bravery. They wanted to see Jesus, minister to Jesus. They did not flee like the rest of the disciples because of fear or what would happen to them. Now let's scroll down to chapter 28, verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come and see in the place where he was lying. So Jesus is risen. I, I just love the testimonies of what takes place when Jesus died and when he rose from the grave and the reaction of the guards. When Jesus died, I love in the scripture, it says that as he died, the, the Roman guards looked to the cross and said, the way that he died, surely this man was the son of God. And then here, they, they appear like dead men. They, they fell through. I mean, the power that is just in Jesus and who he is. I believe it's in John where, where he is betrayed by Judas and, and Judas comes to him, gives him a kiss and, and points out to the guards that this is the one Jesus from Nazareth who is, is saying, I am God and I'm, I'm the Messiah. And when the guard said, are you Jesus, the Messiah? Jesus responds with, I am. I am, like we see in Exodus. And in, in the book of John, it says that the, the guards, they fell slain as if dead. Just by the name of Jesus, he said, I am. And like, poof. And Jesus is like, all right, collect yourselves, boys. Come on, do what you got to do. Let's go. Let's get this thing moving. But the power of the name of Jesus. Well, we have this character, Joseph, who is not your average believer. He wasn't your average follower. He was a very wealthy man. He was a significant member on the council of the Sanhedrin, which was a, a, a large voting uh, rulemaking group of Jewish Orthodox men. And there's a couple things here. They're in your notes if you want to take uh, some notes down of what we can learn from Joseph. The first here is that Joseph searched for Jesus. Joseph searched for Jesus. And he wasn't just searching for Jesus because it was the right thing to do. He was searching for Jesus because he had something to fulfill within his own hearts. You only search for something which is precious to you. Remember last year, there was a hurricane, Isaias or Isaiah's, and it swept through the Caribbean islands, and it swept all the way up the east coast of the United States, killing 18 people. Well, there's a story of a father who had a, a young daughter and a young son. In the middle of the night with no power, these winds came through, and their entire house collapsed. Now, he was with his son, and they were in safety, but his daughter was still inside of the home. And in pitch darkness, rain coming down, wind howling, no way to try to find her. This man literally for hours dug through the rubble with no way to see until he could feel the little hand of his daughter grasp him. And then he pulled her into safety. 
Now, every single parent in this room would know that you would gladly give your life to save the life of your child. But you only search for that which is precious to you. And so Joseph here, it says that he was a wealthy man, he was righteous, and he searched for the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 23, verse 50, he searched for the kingdom of God. Now, here's an orthodox, prominent man on the Sanhedrin, and Jesus was not very popular with the Jews. I don't know if you knew that or not, but he wasn't very popular with them. And here was a man who it says became a disciple of Jesus, but he searched for the kingdom of God. That was something that was a value in his heart, something that was a delight in his heart. And that's why I always say that you don't have to discipline yourself with the things you delight in. Now, my, my family is in the back row. They're here from San Diego, and I'm so grateful to have them with me. And my 14-year-old niece, if I were to say, you know, Dahlia, um, I got a, a $1,000 right here, and I need you to go to the mall, and I need you to take a couple hours, and I need you to just buy a whole bunch of stuff that you want. Now, that probably wouldn't be a problem for any teenager to hand them a bunch of money and say, go ahead and shop for everything that you want. But if I were to tell a teenager, hey, I'm going to give you $5, but in exchange for about three hours of chores, could you do that for me? There'd be a little bit more, you know, pushback, you know, on, on that aspect because you don't have to force somebody to do something they delight in, but you have to force somebody to do something that is a chore to them. So when it comes to the area of our hearts and being followers of Jesus, are we doing the works of Jesus because it's a chore? Or are we so motivated to walk and follow and search after the kingdom of God because we take delight in? You don't have to discipline yourself in the things that you delight in. And many believers are only searching for God when they desperately need him. <laughs> when you tried everything else and you have nothing else to do, now you turn to God. And that's why I always say that prayer should never, ever be a last resort, should always be a first priority. The words, all I can do is pray, should never be something that comes out of your mouth. What should come out of your mouth is, Father, this is no surprise to you. What would you want me to do? How would you want to lead me? And many of us, we only turn to God because we're desperate or we're hungry or we have no idea, you know, where else to turn. No, if we started with God, we probably wouldn't find ourselves in this position. And that's why Joseph, he searched for God in the beginning. He desired God in the beginning. So when the news came that Jesus died, Joseph wasn't turned away. There was no fear in his heart because he had been searching for God. He had this delight in his heart. So I love in Isaiah 26, it says that he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him. When you keep your thoughts completely focused on him all throughout the day, if you can worry all day, you can worship all day. And if we keep our minds stayed on him, we find perfect peace. How dare we think we can change the world if we're distracted from the very presence of the one who changed it first? We need to walk in, in this desire for his face and to constantly look to him and that every move that we make is because of him. So I love in John 5 where it says that Jesus only did what the father did. He only said what the father was saying. He only prayed what the father was saying. I mean, we'll see, in, and I believe it's in Mark chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle. Mark chapter 2, first miracle, turning water into wine. And I love this so much because Mary comes up to Jesus and says, hey, um, it's pretty embarrassing, but they ran out of wine in this backyard wedding. It's also pretty amazing that Jesus was invited to a backyard wedding. He wasn't some religious, thump you over the head with the Bible kind of a guy. People wanted him at parties. And so he's there, and Mary's like, ooh, Jesus, this is your opportunity 
They have no, no wine. You could turn this water into wine. And he says, woman, which <laughs> don't ever say that to your mama. <laughs> he says, woman, my time has not yet come. And then the next verse, after Mary says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. The very next verse, Jesus is turning water into wine. So was he a hypocrite? Was something off? No. I believe, this is my own hypothesis. This is the new international version of Rudy. Okay, this is what I believe. That Jesus heard a request, turn water into wine. He said, Father, should I? Father says, no. He tells her, woman, my time has not yet come. But Mary, in a prophetic act, says, whatever he tells you, I can sense something. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. And the father was like, okay, we have some faith down here. Awesome. Jesus, water to wine. Yes, father. Jesus was so in tune with God that moment by moment, sentence by sentence, he would hear a no, but then he would hear a yes, and he would go. He kept his eyes to heaven. And just like Joseph here, who was constantly searching for Jesus, searching for the kingdom of God, if we want to see our world change, our hearts change, our neighborhoods change, our families change, we got to keep our eyes on Jesus. The second thing in your notes, Joseph stood for Jesus. Joseph stood for Jesus. In John 19, verse 38, which the story of Joseph is in every one of the Gospels. They really wanted us to hear about Joseph. And in John 19, it says that he was disciple, but it also says that he was a secret disciple because of the fear of the Jews. So he was a secret disciple. So that means on, on Saturday, he was fully dressed up in his robes and he was in synagogue. But then come Sunday morning, he was in the four square church with the wig and some sunglasses <laughs> trying to get some of Jesus. He was a secret disciple because of the fear. But then he goes to Pilate. Pilate being a ruler of the area, Pilate being the one condemning Jesus to death by crucifixion, Pilate being the one that has the power, this prominent member of the council of the Sanhedrin, Joseph, went up to Pilate and said, I want the body of Jesus. Now, you can't just say that and not have all the Jews look at you and say, whoa, what are you doing there? We want nothing to do with this false Christ, this false Messiah. But by Joseph standing up and asking for the body of Jesus, he was taking a stand. He was taking a stand saying, I am a disciple of this man. I believe this man and I want to honor this man. So I want his body and I know what I want to do with it. So he made a public confession of what he was going after. And that was being a disciple of Jesus. And so my question is simply, are you willing to stand up for Jesus in the moments that it's inconvenient? Are you willing to stand for Jesus when everyone else doesn't seem to be? Many of us would say yes to that, but some of us are afraid to talk to our neighbors some of us are afraid to talk to our coworkers, or some of us will be at somebody's house and they're having a conversation that's not really uplifting to the Lord. And we're sitting there and we're like, well, we're in their house. We don't want to offend nobody. Or will you speak up? Will you stand for Jesus? Will you boldly proclaim him? Will you feel that nudging of the Holy Spirit while you're waiting for your caramel latte, salted, whatever at Starbucks? And as you're waiting, you know, and they're going to spell your name wrong, of course, on the cup and you're waiting and of course, you're praying because you're such a holy Christian and you're praying and meditating as you're waiting for your coffee. You don't need coffee to wake you up and make you in a better mood. You're alive in the Lord. You're just for the flavor, for the fun of it, you're getting the coffee. But you feel that nudge of the Holy Spirit. You see that person off in the corner and you feel a word come to you. Not a big word, just a few, few little phrases that the Lord wants you to deliver. Will you stand for Jesus? So somebody, Joseph, who had his entire reputation on the line, who could have been killed for what he was about to do, would probably be cast out from all of his inner circles and all, all the little clubs that he was a part of, would probably have his position removed because of the stance that he took. But I'm telling you, the reward is so much greater. 
When you sacrifice, is it honestly a sacrifice when you're sacrificing for Jesus? So he stood for Jesus. In Luke uh, 6.45, it says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I, I shared that scripture with you because we want to stand for Jesus. But if you don't come with the heart that's prepared to stand for Jesus, nine times out of ten, you're going to fail and falter. I love the story where, where the disciples are trying to cast out a demon of a little boy, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus comes over and says, only by prayer and fasting does this come out. Jesus wasn't saying, you guys aren't good enough. You should have prayed harder, prayed better, fasted more. He was saying, no, you should have been prepared by fasting, saying no to your flesh, yes to your spirit, man, so that you wouldn't be living in fear to cast out this demon. That's my opinion. So we have to have hearts that are prepared and ready that in the moment we're going to be able to stand up and stand for Jesus in the middle of the opposition. I love that little video I see on, online. There's these two little dogs, like a pug and a chihuahua, and they're just barking at each other like they want to rip each other's throats out. But there's a gate separating them. You know these little dogs, and they're so macho, and they're just going to be, and they're, they're, they're wanting to just tear each other apart. But then the owner comes along, and he's like, all right, you guys are big and bad. And he moves the gate out of the way. So now these two little dogs are staring at each other and nothing is stopping them. Only space and opportunity. And these dogs look at each other and like, well, it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> and they literally just walk off. They're all big and bad barking at each other. But once they remove, isn't that like Facebook? <laughs> bleh, bleh, bleh. Oh my gosh, I'm offended. Yeah, well, let's meet face to face. Well, well. <laughs> But in the moment, will you stand for Jesus? And you can only stand for Jesus in the moment when your heart has been changed, when you've been filled up, when you're so alive with him, it's going to take everything in you to not say something or to not bring a change or to not lay hands and to pray. If we want to stand for Jesus, we have to have our hearts that are already made up. How do you change your heart? How do you get your heart prepared? It's very, very simple. You just welcome him in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faced the fire. They could have prayed, God, extinguish the fire. God, remove us. God, save us. God, you're able. We know you're able. But instead, they said, whatever you decide, we're going to be okay because we will worship God alone, and we won't bow down to this image you have set up. And in that fire, they weren't burned. They, they didn't even smell like smoke. But a fourth man, like the son of man, Jesus, walked around with them. So they didn't ask, God, just take this fire away from me. They said, Jesus, meet me in the fire. So maybe our prayers need to change. Father, take this temptation away from me. Instead of Jesus, meet me in this temptation. Heal it. Show me something better. Heal me up on this one. Give me a better perspective. Oh, this fear, this anxiety that I have. God, just take it from me. He can do that. He's God. He's a wonderful, loving Father. He would love to remove our, our problems away from us. But what about Father Jesus, who gives a peace to the trans sends all understanding, would you meet me in the middle of my fear? Welcome him in. Watch that heart change. Fill your hearts up so that it's overflowing with the goodness of God and you can stand for Jesus. And then finally, number three, Joseph served Jesus. So we want to have hearts that desire the face of God. We want to have hearts that are filled up so that we can stand for God. But we don't want to just get saved, healed, and delivered for nothing and, and no, no fruit. We want to serve Jesus. And that's why Joseph, in which I love so much, he said, I want the body of Jesus. I have searched for this man. I believe this man. He's bringing the kingdom of God into this world. And I'm going to stand for him, but I also want to serve him. Give me his body. 
I'll prepare properly his body. I have an expensive tomb that is mine personally, and I've hewn it out of of a rock, and I want to put him in there. I want to bless Jesus with what I have, and I want to challenge us to do exactly the same thing, that we have talents, we have money, we have skills, we have resources, we have wisdom, we have experiences that many other people don't. So are we willing to serve Jesus with what he has freely given to us And again, is the sacrifice really a sacrifice when we're giving it all to Jesus? The peace, the blessing, the oneness that we feel in him, is it really a sacrifice when we give it all away? We cannot outgive God. My God is so abundant, but he's never wasteful. I mean, how much ocean do we need? How much sky do we need? My God is abundant to show all that he can accomplish, but he's never wasteful. He picks up the baskets with the leftover bread and fish. He's never wasteful. So we can give it all to God, but we can never outgive God. And if we do so with hearts that want him, with hearts that will stand for him, with hearts that will serve him, we can honestly see a change in this world, beginning with your own heart. We can't dare to change the world until we first change ourselves. And I want to conclude today, well, we're going to conclude in two ways, one with a little poem and then another with one final video that we'll watch today. But this came from an inscription on the Bishop of Westminster Abbey. And it's a bishop who uh, had a desire to change the world. And the challenge that he left on his deathbed is inspiring to all of us. It says, when I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change. So I shortened my sight somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years, One last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me. But alas, they would have none of it. And now I realize, as I lie on my deathbed, if I had only changed myself first, then by example, I might have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country. And who knows, I might have even changed the world. And let me leave you with this final thing, and then I'll pray for you, and we'll beat the Baptists to the buffets. What do you say, huh? (laughs) That Mary Magdalene, as we saw, we saw Rebecca play in our drama, prepared Spikenard to anoint Jesus before his death. Spikenard is the scent of worship. And it says that this this costly perfume that was a year's wages, so whatever you make in in a year, that's how much it costs. And she broke it, and poured it out before Jesus and anointed him, wiping his feet with her tears and and with her hair. It was an amazing scene, and she gave everything. She gave up this dowry that could have been for her future wedding. She gave it all to Jesus. But you know what happened is that she walked around that final holy week before the death and resurrection of Jesus, smelling just like the Messiah. When they smelled Jesus covered in spikenard, they saw Mary Magdalene with the same smell. So it's my encouragement and my challenge to you this morning that let us search for Jesus, fill our hearts with him, let's serve him so that when we go about in the highways and the byways, the marketplaces in our neighborhoods, people can smell and sense the Savior on us. So Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for my friends. Thank you, God, that we are in the house of the Lord. There is a million other places we could be. We could be down and out, addicted, completely without hope, but you allowed our past to cross and welcome you into our hearts. So we are grateful, eternally grateful for what you have done. 
Now may you touch my friends and fill them with your peace. May you spark a newfound motivation in their hearts. May this week, as we reflect on the resurrection, bring them encounters in your presence like never before. May you protect us, heal us, and go before us ever be. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you, family. Have a wonderful Easter and a wonderful week.